Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. We've been going through the story of Genesis and looking at the storytelling in particular. That's sort of my field. That's what I'm interested in is storytelling. And so even as it comes to scripture and um, something that is more than just an interest for me, something that really informs how I live, how I treat other people, who God is, and uh, what our what my relationship with God is. Uh, still, I like to look at the storytelling and what is that, how does that inform all those, all those dynamics and all those relationships. So if you, like me, are somebody who's a person of faith, then I hope that this study will um, just really open your eyes to the depths uh, of Scripture. Uh, all these little uh, nuggets for you to, to mine that may be uh, hiding in plain sight there. If you're a skeptic, if you don't believe that Genesis uh, really happened, you think this is kind of a fairy tale or work of fiction, uh, stick with us because I think as we look at just some of the storytelling, it may raise some questions that um, may have you take a second look at Genesis. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll come to believe it. I hope that you do. I do. Um but I think that you'll see that there are some genuine truths there. Uh, I have uh, a few things to go over. I want to do like a little bit of a review kind of thing. And then I want to go over some some ideas that I've had to kind of skip over to get to this point. But now they're going to become relevant again in some of the things that we're about to look at next week. And so uh, I think tonight's a, a good time to kind of go ahead and cover a few of those things. And then we're going to look at Genesis chapter 12. So if you want to get uh, Bibles open in Genesis 12, you can do that. And we may be uh, flipping around a little bit before that. So to kind of go over a little bit of the review, <clears throat> I'm going to kind of repeat this a little bit in the coming classes so that you, you hear it repeated. And this is... Um, just sort of chapter by chapter, what is in Genesis. And the reason that I do that is so that you'll know Genesis better, okay? Be very difficult for you to memorize the entire Bible, but it wouldn't be that difficult to know big sections of the Bible and kind of where things where things lie in the Bible. So I'm going to kind of do that as we go along, and, and maybe once we get a little farther in Genesis, I'll start to sort of group it into chunks. But uh, here's what we've gone through so far. So Genesis 1 is creation. Genesis 2 is the creation of man and woman. Genesis 3 is the fall, the first sin, the expulsion from the garden. Genesis 4 is Cain murdering Abel. Genesis 5 is the lineage of Seth. Genesis 6, we meet Noah. 
Genesis 7 is the flood. Genesis 8 is the flood subsiding. Genesis 9 is the rainbow, the blessing, but also Ham's offense and the curse of Canaan. And so you get the blessing and the curse in Genesis 9. And then in Genesis 10, we have Noah's lineage. So let me cover a few issues that I haven't really been able to touch on, haven't taken the time to touch on as we've gone through these first uh, uh, 10, 11 chapters here. Uh, Oh, in chapter 11, we looked at um, uh, last night, and that is uh, the Tower of Babel and the lineage of Shem, Noah's son. So a few of the issues that I've had a chance to touch on. There have been a couple of times when God is speaking and he uses the phrase, let us. So uh, let us make man in our image or in the Tower of Babel story, let us go down. And so the commentary that I'm looking at, Robert Alter's commentary, he doesn't even mention it. I mean, he doesn't even make a big deal out of it. Uh, I've seen in other commentaries where he talks about there's there's sort of this royal we you know, um, and you could do some more research on that and, and, and find about that. But, uh, it is not in any way God saying to other gods or, or whatever else is around. At least that's, some people think that that may be what's happening, but that, that's by no means the primary academic thought of what's happening here. There's sort of a royal we in ancient literature, and it's sort of being evoked here in this way. Uh, and it also, it kind of ties in with the fact that um, when you see God's name, when you see God referred to, you will see him in these first 10, 11 chapters referred to as either Elohim or uh, Elohim with the uh, with uh, the t- tetragram, with the, the name he would come to be known as later. Um once he uh, speaks to Moses and says, this is my name. And I don't say the name on broadcast because for some people, that's a very sensitive thing. So I want to, I want to respect that. So here are the first 11 chapters of Genesis. He's either known as uh, Elohim or Elohim uh, YHWH. So what that word Elohim, what does that mean? Well, I mentioned uh, last night when we were talking about Eber and the Eberim, that I am ending, this is the way you make a word plural, uh, most of the time in Hebrew. So in the same way, we stick an S on the end to make something plural in English. Uh, so many times an I-M on the end of a word indicates that it is a plural. So when you have um, L, that word simply means God, like any kind of God or deity. And then you have Elohim, which just simply means God's plural. So it's Interesting that the word for God in Genesis is Elohim, which is a plural word. However, anytime that you see it in Genesis, it takes singular modifiers, singular pronouns, etc. So it's clearly meant to be a singular term. So what is happening there in the pluralizing of it does not mean that there's more than one. It just means it's the like the God of gods. Okay, here's God, and this is this is the this is the God God. Okay, this is the this is the number one. This is the big one. This is overall. Um, that is a super oversimplified explanation to help you understand a, a little more complicated concept from an ancient language and from an ancient culture. And I'm going to put a link in the comments uh, right now from this is a, a podcast episode from the Bible Project where they discuss all the intricacies of this issue. And they do, in my opinion, a pretty decent job of, of talking about all the difficulties. So I've got the link there, uh, should be showing up in the comments. 
And uh, so it's for Bible Project, which if you've ever seen like the little whiteboard animation sketches of different Bible books, this is the same uh, folks, I, I believe. So uh, they have a really great podcast. They discuss lots of uh, difficult um, issues from scripture. And I think that um, that if it, it can get a little heady, I'll give you that that caveat. But if you like things like this and you like really understanding scripture and understanding some of the difficult things to understand, I think they do a good job of breaking that down. Their whole podcast is full of stuff like that. So that might be a resource that you would be interested in checking out. While we're talking about free resources, let me throw another one at you. And that is the Faith Life Study Bible. It's a free app for your iPhone or for your Android phone. And the Faith Life Study Bible as I say, it's free. It includes a uh, translation of the Bible and uh, free, like a study study Bible, study Bible notes. So if you've ever bought a study Bible, like a hardback uh, or leather bound study Bible, you know that they can range from anywhere from 60 to $100, some of them. They can be very expensive because of the extensive amount of notes and maps and diagrams and that sort of thing that you'll find in there. Faith Life Study Bible is totally free and has just the same content. It's got notes on almost every verse of the Bible. It's got introductions to every book of the Bible. So all kinds of pop-out articles to help you understand concepts, uh, character sketches. It's got timelines, maps, photos, uh, artist renderings, videos. It's a really fantastic app. So if you don't have it, that's a great one. The translation that's included in it is not... Uh, it's not like an easy to read translation, so it might not be great to study with somebody else, but for your own personal Bible study, it's excellent. It's the Lexham English translation, I believe is what they use. And it's very similar to sort of an ESV uh, or something like that. If you're, um, if you're used to Bible translations, you know what I'm talking about. So a uh, Faith Life Study Bible. If you have no other Bible, Faith Life Study Bible is a good place to start because it has so many notes to kind of help you along, help you make sense of what it is that you're reading. So that's a good resource for you. It's a good resource to share with other people. So that's Bible Project Podcast and then unrelated, the Faith Life Study Bible, um, both of which are free. Lots of free free resources out there. I, I did spend, you know, a semester and a half or something in, in grad school, uh, at the Grad School of Religion in Memphis. I didn't learn any of this there. I went through the library class and I learned some beginning Greek before the work life took over and I was no longer able to attend classes. So everything that I've learned is pretty much armchair. I've learned it just from reading and just from being curious. So if you're curious and you like to read, then there's plenty of information out there for you. Some resources I have bought, many resources I have found for free. So there's lots of learning to be had out there. Uh, if you ever have a question about anything involving scripture, there's plenty of answers out there uh, for you to sort through. It's just a matter of finding reputable sources. So um so anyway, there are some free things that you can take with you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Another thing that um, I kind of glazed over a little bit, I think I might have referred to it a little bit last night, but back in Genesis chapter four, when after Cain kills Abel, he goes off and uh, I want to read Genesis four seventeen. It says, Cain was intimate with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain became the builder of a city and he named the city Enoch after his son. So a couple things here that I don't think I discussed because we didn't really, you know, we're not reading the text as we go through uh, just copyright issues and things like that. But um, a couple issues. One is where did Cain's wife come from? 
And if anyone ever asks you that question, the correct answer is, I don't know. And I think we did maybe discuss this, but uh, it, it could have been um, a, a, basically like a sister. It could have been a daughter of, of Adam and Eve. We have no record that daughters were born, but we have no record that any daughters are born in any of the lineages that we have. It's a patriarchal society. It's a male-driven society, and the lineage is passed down through the males. And so you will really only see women mentioned in lineage when there's some important storytelling, when they're important to the story that is involved. And you certainly see that by the time you get into the New Testament with Jesus's lineage, there are four women in particular that appear in Jesus's lineage that have a lot of storytelling going on just by the bare mention of their name. So just because it hasn't mentioned that Adam and Eve um, have had daughters, it doesn't mean that they didn't have them. So Cain's wife could have been a daughter. It could have been uh, maybe God's got some other uh, people creating going on in some other space. There are lots of different ways to interpret this. None of us can be certain about any of them. So the correct answer is, where did Cain's wife come from? Hey, I don't know. Okay. Uh, and again, that answer, I don't know. That can be a very empowering answer when you're dealing with somebody who's a skeptic looking at scriptures and they're pounding you with all these questions. Don't feel like you got to have the answers to all this stuff. You know? Nobody has the answers to a lot of these things. There are a lot of things about the Bible that have been debated for a long time. The question is, what does it matter? What does it affect and how I interpret what I'm reading? And when you start to ask those sort of practical kind of questions, you'll find where does Cain's wife come from? Like, what difference does it make? Like, who cares? Right. He's got one, you know. Okay. So he gives birth to Enoch. Then it says, then Cain became the builder of a city. So in the same way that Noah be began to grow vineyards, you know, last night we said that means the, the the Hebrew there sort of indicates he was the first person ever to grow a vineyard. He, he began the practice of growing vineyards. That same thing is happening here in this sentence. Cain became the builder of a city. What that means is Cain became the first person who would build a city is what that's implying. So Cain builds the first city. So after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, they have Seth and they're sort of these you know, they've been tending to the animals and to the plants. And so they're sort of wandering around being farmers, we suspect. Cain goes off and he's the builder of a city. And we see a lot of his lineage being builders of cities. Cities were centered around uh, primarily watchtowers, because what you would have is you have a mass of people living together and they don't want other people to come in and attack them and take their resources. So they would build a wall around the city. And in order to see over the wall, they would build a tower. So cities were primarily defined by towers in at this point in history. So that's very interesting because if you uh, go down here to downtown Cleveland and you go to the center of the city, what do you see? Well, it's the courthouse. It's the seat of judgment. And what is all around the courthouse, right there on those one-way streets around the square? Well, it's a bunch of shops and uh, lawyers' offices and, and things like this. It's, it's commerce, right? It's the marketplace. And then what is also right there on those first blocks right off from the commerce? What's the churches? It's the first churches that were built in Cleveland. Go to Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You'll see the same thing. What's the iconic thing of Murfreesboro that's on t-shirts and, and websites and everything else? It's the a courthouse. And what's right around the courthouse? It's commerce. And what's just outside the commerce? It's, you know, um, the, the big church of Christ is right there, uh, right off the square, right? It's all the church, there's several churches that are, that are right in that area, early churches. So in 
our modern society, the center of a city is the seat of judgment, it's commerce, it's religion, you know, the temple, the church. In the early days, though, it was the watchtower. Why? Because the cities basically, especially certainly in the narrative storytelling that's happening here, the cities are symbolized by fear. Cain, who's been given a punishment by God, adds to his punishment saying, and I will be killed. I'm going to roam the earth and I'll be killed. So he builds a city in which to hide. And then we go from there and who else builds a city? Well, it's the people building the Tower of Babel, right? And they're doing it to make a name for themselves. So in the Tower of Babel story, first they build bricks and then it's like, oh, what can we do with these bricks? Hey, let's build a city and then let's make a name for ourselves. And sort of, there's this sort of uh, step up, this increase in the building that they're doing, but it's all rooted sort of out of this out of this fear. We've got to huddle together and put a wall up for fear that somebody's going to come along and do something to us that we don't like. So that is setting up some things that we're going to see as we look at more stories going ahead. The contrast between sort of the nomad, farmer, livestock guy, like Abraham is going to be, versus the city people, the people who live in cities. We're going to see that real that dichotomy real clearly between Abram and Lot, and we're going to see it um, even as we uh, go on in some of the other stories in Genesis. So uh, be looking for that this idea of the cities versus the um, the the people who are um, the, the the farmers, the agrarians. Another thing that I didn't spend a lot of time on is, uh, although I kind of alluded to it, is Noah is kind of a second Adam. So he had Adam, okay, now we have Noah, and Noah is kind of a second Adam. Noah is the first person built after Adam dies, so there's kind of this clean break between the story of Adam and the story of Noah. Noah, after the flood, is the first man. He's got the first family. All peoples of earth are descended from him. He's got, just like Adam, he's got three sons, one of whom commits an evil act against his own family, right? Uh, Noah eats a fruit, right? He gets drunk on the wine, on the grapes that he grows, right? Um, and that leads to sin, nakedness, and shame from the eating of the fruit. So you see, there's a lot of parallels between the Noah story and the Adam story. You may not have ever picked up on that before, but when you see that all laid out in that way, you see the story that's being told here. Now, when Abram is born, so we have Noah, we have Shem, and we get all the way down to the end of the lineage, and then we land on Abram, which is kind of where we ended last night. Well, Abram is alive with Noah. So we talked a lot about Eber last night and how he might have been sort of the, the patriarch that Abram established himself with, and that's why they've become known as the Hebrews, the Eberim, the people of Eber, the sons of Eber. But I also mentioned that, you know, some Eber's ancestors were still alive at this time also, including Noah. If you do all the math, and I'm not going to do it for you. I did it earlier, but I'm not going to do it now. Uh, Noah is still alive when Abram is born. So you don't have a clean break like you had between Adam and Noah. Between Noah and Abram, what you have is a continuing story. This is not a new story. This is not a third creation right? There was a creation and then there was a recreation. And at the recreation, God, you know, says through the story, wow, you know, people are just evil from their youth. So there's no point in doing this again. And he even makes the promise. I'm not going to do that again. Next time I do it, it's going to be, you know, for good. It's going to be with fire. So, <clears throat> uh, so Abram is alive with Noah. Um, 
And uh, this is a continuing story. So all the first 11 chapters of Genesis keep zooming down and zooming down and zooming down until we land on Abram. And this genealogy here at the end of 11, coming into 12, this is the last genealogy that we're going to have until Genesis 25, which is a genealogy of Abraham. And that is because this is now the Abraham story. So from 12 to 25, this is the, the Abraham story. So we've had several genealogies leading up to this. Remember, genealogies are kind of like act breaks, right? Well, this is a big act break. The prologue is over. And now we're into the big story of Abram or Abraham. And we're going to be there for a little while. And notice what the story has done. It has started at the universal level and it has gradually descended and gotten smaller and smaller and more and more focused until we land on a single man named Abram. And what this does, this takes the reader's relationship with God from a universal relationship into a personal relationship. I can now I can be Abram. I can put myself in, in the, the, the mind, mindset of Abram and make decisions. You know, Oh, is that what I would do? Is that how I would react? Is that what I would say if God said these things to me? So already, uh, as a reader, I'm imagining what a personal relationship with God might be like. See, that's just masterful storytelling. It's really incredible. So, uh, we started with, um, Genesis chapter 12 last night. And before I pick that back up uh, and just, uh, we're not going to talk real long about chapter 12. Uh, I'm just going to point out a few things. Before I do that, I'm just going to pop over and um, just looking to see if there's any questions or anything. I don't see any so far. So if you do have any questions about anything that we've talked about in previous lessons or tonight, drop them in the comments and I'll get to them uh, after we talk about Genesis 12. So Genesis 12 and looking at verse one. I guess the best way tonight, what I'll do is I will read Genesis 12 and then we'll come back and talk about uh, some of the things that are going on here. Uh, so I'm reading from Robert Alter's translation in the, the five books of Moses. Uh, so if you want to pick this up, ebook or paperback, highly recommend it. Robert Alter's translation and commentary called the five books of Moses. So this is Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse one, the entire chapter. And the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your land and your birthplace and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and all the clans of the earth through you shall be blessed. And Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went forth with him. Abram being 75 years old when he left Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all the goods they had gotten and the folk they had brought in Haran. And they set out on the way to the land of Canaan. And they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram crossed through the land to the site of Shechem, to the Terebinth of Moreh. The Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. And he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he pulled up his stakes from there for the high country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel to the west and Ai to the east. And he built there an altar to the Lord. And he invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed onward by stages to the Negev. And there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was grave in the land. 
And it happened as he drew near to the border of Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Look, I know you're a beautiful woman. So when the Egyptians see you and say she is his wife, they will kill me while you they will let live. Say, please, that you are my sister so that it will go well with me on your account and I shall stay alive because of you. And it happened when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful and Pharaoh's courtiers saw her and praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And it went well with Abram on her account, and he had sheep and cattle and donkeys and male and female slaves and she-donkeys and camels. And the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his household with terrible plagues because of Sarai, the wife of Abram. And Pharaoh summoned Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I go to her, uh, so that I took her to me as a wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to me as wife? Now here is your wife. Take her and get out. And Pharaoh appointed men over him and they sent him out with his wife and all he had. Okay. Excuse me. So that's Genesis chapter 12. Let's go back and kind of go through it piece by piece and look at a few things. So uh, right away in the beginning, I want you to notice something. Lord says to Abram, go forth from your land and your birthplace, and your father's house. See how that zooming in sort of replicates what's happened in Genesis 1 through 11? That zooming in right to Abram. And he says, go to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And you see how then there's this abundance. So again, just repeating the themes we saw in the early sentences of Genesis 1. God is separating Abram from all the other things going on, and he is putting him in a place where he's going to be abundant, right? It's just these repeating things over and over again. Again, the first sentence of Genesis is almost all you need. Everything else is just an extrapolation of that. So so then we go on. We have to ask, why does the Lord choose Abram? Why does he choose Abram? That's an interesting question. Is there something special about him? Is there something special about the people that he's a part of? Um, did he do something special? Does he believe something special? Well, this text doesn't really tell us. It doesn't give us any information that there's anything special about Abram. So there could be a couple possibilities. One possibility is that being from the lineage of Shem, that um, the worshiping monotheistic, the one and only God, has stayed in the family. They've kept the religion of Shem intact, and they are still practicing that. And maybe they're the only practicing people left on the planet, or one of the few. That could be a possibility. It would be very strange because they would be uh, a nomadic people sort of among all these city-states, and they would be sort of considered radicals, almost kind of like we look at the Amish, like, oh, isn't that kind of a radical way to live? That seems like kind of extreme way to to, to take some of these ideas of Scripture. That might be how Abram and his family, the the clan of Terah, that might be how how they were viewed. Uh, Another possibility, it's interesting because all of Abram's sort of immediate family, they're all named very similar names of like moon gods of the Canaanite people of the time. And so there's that kind of leads some indication to, to think maybe um, they were like moon worshipers or something. So it may be that Abram's family was all pagan and then, and God calls him out of this paganness. And, and again, we have to ask, well, well, why, what, for, for what reason, you know, 
And unfortunately, the text doesn't tell us. So we're just sort of left to speculate. But there's a there's one real question on the table that we want to know, a question that was posed back in Genesis 1. Will man be good? Will man fulfill his purpose? Is man good? And so we have to ask, well, is Abram good? Is that why the Lord has chosen him? How can we know, since we don't know anything about Abram up to this point, how can we know if Abram is good or not? Is there a way that we can know? Yes, there is a way that we can know, because we learned how to find out with Noah. Okay, In the story of Noah, Noah, who seemed like he was going to be good, he had favor with God, right? He obeyed God. Um, we see a lot of tragedy happening to Noah very shortly after the flood is over. And we see God's statement in the Noah story that uh, every man is evil from his youth, right? Every human is evil from his youth. So here's the sort of um, philosophical equation that we have to do. Is Abram human? Yes. Okay, well, then he's evil from his youth. <laughs> so the answer is, okay, no, he's not good, right? By the way, that works with uh, every human that has ever walked the face of the earth, except for Jesus, of course. So... If he is human, he's evil from his youth, and therefore not good, right? So, um, finally, the story of Abram settles the age-old debate between the Calvinists and the Arminians, right? Do, do we choose God, or does God choose us? The answer is clear. The answer is yes, right? Because there was no reason at all. Even if Abram was continuing the religion of Shem, we still know Abram's not good because every every person is evil from their youth. So there's no reason for God to choose Abram. And he does so anyway, because God is a graceful God and God can choose whomever he wants to choose. But we also see that Abram obeys God. And when God says go, Abram goes. So God selected Abram and Abram did nothing to earn that. But Abraham, Abram also obeyed, and that's uh, something worth remembering as well. So we see in the story that Sarai is barren, um, and I don't know that it's uh, actually ex ex stated that explicitly yet, but obviously that becomes an issue later. That's where the story of Isaac comes from, right? So Sarai is barren. He has no children. He's 75 years old, has no children. All of his ancestors have been having children at around age 30, 35, something like that. He doesn't have children at 75. Sarai is barren and the land is barren. There's famine in the land, right? So you see the parallels that are being drawn here. So they go down to Egypt. Why? Egypt is lush, right? Remember, if this is written by Moses or anyone after Moses, then Egypt already has a negative mindset in the mind of the Jewish people because they were brought out of slavery from Egypt. And they're always tempted to go back to Egypt because in Egypt they had fish and onions and leeks and all kinds of things that they could eat there. And they had bread and they weren't wandering around in the desert, dying of thirst, eating this manna, right? So that's all stuff that's going to come later. But even though that stuff comes later in the story, it's still in the past for even the first people who would have read this. So already Egypt has some negative connotations. So here you see Abram going down out of his place from the Negev and going down into Egypt where it is lush because there's a famine. So um, then you see uh, Abram, he has his first words. So you remember when I said in storytelling, look at character introductions, look at a person's first actions and look at their first words, particularly in Genesis, because it's going to let you know something about them. Abram's first words 
are to tell his wife to lie to Pharaoh so that things will go well for him. So he, he, he uh, conspires with his wife to lie, objectifying her for his own benefit. And sure enough, it works. She lies. Pharaoh takes her, gives Ab- Abram a bunch of livestock and things in return. And the language that's used here is pretty explicit. And if you were to say that Abram pimped his wife out, I don't use that word lightly. That's literally what is happening here. He's sort of turned his wife over to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's taking her as a wife, right? That's I mean, we, we understand what Pharaoh intends to do, whether or not he does it, right? And Abram receives, you know, financial compensation for that. So if you had any question of whether or not Abram was a good guy, here it is. Abram's first, his first actions, you know, his first action is to obey the Lord and that's good. But his first words and his actions preceding it are, are not good. Not a good look, Abram. Okay. Um, and so they're so bad <laughs> that you have Pharaoh, a hated figure for Jews, even the Jews that the first Jews that would have read this. You have Pharaoh, a hated figure, giving Abram a lesson in morality, right? He's telling Abram, hey, you should have told the truth, guy. Okay, so just in case you thought Abram was good, in this story, he's worse than Pharaoh, okay? So just letting you know where everybody stands here. Because I think with Vacation Bible School and this kind of stuff, we sort of revere Abram. Abraham is, you know, this real stand-up guy. Scripture is very clear. Not a good guy. It's a good God, not good people. Right? Jesus reiterates this in the New Testament. There's only one who is good. Right? So that should be encouraging to us because I don't know about you, but I'm not a good guy. You know, I try to be, but I fail a lot. And, but I have a good God. So that's good news. Right? Okay. There's another lesson here in the story of Abram and Sarai and Pharaoh. And that is this Pharaoh is a really important person at this point in history way more important than some shepherd from someplace nobody ever heard of. And God is more concerned with Abram and Sarai than he is with Pharaoh. This story, the story of God, is more concerned with the two of them than with Pharaoh. Once again, you have the story, the narrative, letting you know, letting you, the, you know, Probably, uh, if you're watching this, you're inconsequential to a lot of things going on in the world. You're very important to your family. You're very important to your friends. You might even have an important place in your community. But to the whole world, most people have never heard of you, right? You're in the same position as Abram. And God is saying, people like you are my favorite people. People like you, you're on my team. I come for you people. I come for the little guy. So from this point forward, Genesis is no longer about the cosmos, the earth, uh, the tribes of the Middle East, geopolitics, although all those things still exist and will play a part. But now we're following a man and his family. We're following a family beginning with a single man, Abram. And that allows us to be the center of the story. That allows us to put our ourselves in the mindset of Abram and learn what he learns as we travel the story with him. You know, I'm an author, and when I write... Many of my books have a single main character, and I do that for a reason. It's because I want you, the reader, to be able to sort of get inside the mind of that single main character and see the world as they're seeing it so that you will go through the change that the character goes through throughout the course of the book. Because there's something that I want to share with you or something that I'd like for you to to learn or to understand or a question that I'd like for you to to sort of chew on and, and work out as you walk away from the book. It's the exact same thing that's happening here. I didn't invent 
that process. I learned it from the masterful storytelling of ancient literature and uh, from the literature that God himself has written. So this will be the story of God throughout the rest of the Bible. Every story, every law, every prophecy, every poem, every song, every bit of wisdom, every good news, every act, every letter, every revelation, God is Father and we are his family. That's the story of the Bible. And I don't know that you can make a more beautiful case for that um, than the Holy Spirit did through Peter in Acts 2, when a spirit wind blows through the chaos, the breath of God is breathed into the men he created, the scattering of peoples and languages is undone, genealogies are now traded for a single father, men and women begin to call on the name of the Lord, the Lord destroys sin and evil with a flood of water, people can be separated from their sin forever, and the first family of heaven begins to be fruitful and multiply and go into all the earth. You see, the events of Acts 2 are replicating, very much so, the events of Genesis 1 through 12. The beginning of the church, in many ways, mimics the beginning of all of creation. So I'm just going to read to you now from the end of Acts 2, and then uh, uh, we'll, we'll wrap some things up. Peter delivers the sermon in Acts 2, beginning in verse 37. Peter delivers the sermon, letting them know that um, the Jesus that Scripture has always been pointing to is the Jesus that they have crucified. Beginning in verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, Peter testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. You hear that? Separate yourself from the corrupt generation and find abundance. Again, that opening idea of Genesis right here in Peter's sermon. Continuing on, verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So you see, Acts 2 is almost the, the anti-Genesis. As everything begins to sort of break apart in Genesis, everything comes together. And we see that abundance happening in Acts chapter 2. And so I just want to reiterate to anyone who is listening that when uh, 
the men listening realizes they realized they needed to be saved. They asked Peter and the apostles, what should we do? And Peter didn't say, oh, you don't have to do anything. God's done it for you. Peter didn't say, oh, just pray this prayer or accept this thing. Peter was very specific. When they said, what must we, what must we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, each one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's how sins are forgiven. And you get a bonus, something you didn't even ask for. God's good at doing that. You'll get the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will live in you as a marker, will transform you, will help you uh, be, be constantly transforming who you are so you look more and more like Jesus, and that you'll be able to share and be able to tap into the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You'll be able to tap into that power every day when you're um, just living life and loving others. And you see that taking place in the verses that follow. You know, raised in churches of Christ, I heard Acts 2.38 a lot, but um, I would love to uh, see more churches of Christ really adopt Acts 41 through 47 and see that flourishing and that fellowship and that discipleship, the constant teaching that's going on, not just from the apostles, not just from the preachers, not just from the people paid to be in the pulpit, but teaching person to person in small group Bible studies and homes. And right now is a good time to learn to do that. Get Google Hangout, get Skype, get Zoom, get FaceTime, get your family on the screen and uh, do Bible studies together. Now's a good time to do that. One other resource that I'll put in the comments that can be helpful is um, uh, northboulevard.com slash DBS, Discovery Bible Study. And I've just put that in the comments there. Um, if you go to northboulevard.com slash DBS, you click on that link there, you'll learn how to do Discovery Bible Study. And the main thing is the text questions. If you can just remember this, this, this will be uh, something that will really help you in your personal Bible study, in your small group Bible study, and perhaps even in your classes. When you read a text, ask, what does this say about God? What does this say about people? And how am I going to put it into practice? How am I going to obey it? Right? So a full discovery Bible study is a, is a little more. When people come together, you say, hey, what are you thankful for? What challenges you got going on? Um, last week, you committed to do some things. Have you done those things? And how did that go? Then you read the text and ask, what's it say about God? What's it say about people? What am I going to do about it? Who am I going to tell about it? And then is there some way that we can serve each other? It's eight, uh, eight questions. It's the same questions every week, no matter the text. I've been doing it for years. No longer am I searching for good Bible study curriculum or a small group curriculum. I don't use books. There's lots of great books out there to use. If you want to use some great books, go for it. No problem. But scripture is the thing that people need. They need the word of God. Any book I get off the shelf, even when it's written by Ravi Zacharias or Francis Chan or C.S. Lewis or Max Licato, whoever it's written by, I can argue with those guys. I don't have to agree with those guys, right? I can argue with those guys. I cannot disagree with scripture. I must agree with scripture. And so I love to study the Bible and I love to do discovery Bible study. So while we're at home, You've got the internet. You've got the uh, a way of being able to talk to people. Get on the horn. Read a couple of verses with uh, some people that you love, friends and family, and ask, what's this say about God? What's this say about people? And how can I obey this? How can I put this into practice right away? And have them hold you accountable to that. It's a great way to study the Bible. I mentioned at the very beginning of this uh, how, to, how to study the Bible, two ways in which we are sorely lax. One is reading the Bible out loud with other people, and the second is obeying what we read. 
those are the two big things that we're really deficient on that we could really work on. I hope a study like this is helping you do that. It's helping you learn more about scripture, is increasing your fervor for scripture, is increasing your appreciation of scripture, your love of scripture. And I hope that you will walk away from the study um, with a desire to dive in, to eat it, to devour it, to feast on it, and then to share what you've learned with other people. If this has been helpful for you, share it with somebody else. If uh, you think you want to uh, follow this, follow Jesus, follow the scripture, and you need to be baptized, even with social distancing going on, we'll find a way to get in a baptistry and get you baptized safely. So reach out to me and I'll put you in touch with somebody that can make that happen for you in whatever city that you're in. So whoever's watching this, if you need baptism, let's take care of it. We'll take care of it tonight if we have to. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.